Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored. I'm fact checker Mark Boyer. The imaginary Burl Bearer host is on quarantine, and we'll be chatting with him in a moment. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen. With yeah, but make, make it clear that it's it's a self-quarantine. It's a self-quarantine. He doesn't have the virus. No, oh, but he no, does I have crazy. Know. Hey, he has mental illness, but he doesn't have the he doesn't have the Koran virus. Oh no, he has the Koran virus, but he doesn't have the coronavirus. Correct. Yeah. So this program is produced with a great disdain and apathy by Magic <laughs> and Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. Finally, true words on this yeah. show. <laughs> Perfectly stated. Yes, uh, we're going to be talking with the imaginary Burl Bear, <clears throat> legend in his own mind. Burl. Yes. You doing okay out there? And oh, of course, I don't have any viruses. I have, as uh, Matt mentioned, uh, metal cogitations, and uh, I don't have the coronavirus. I don't have the uh, any virus. As a matter, of, I don't have Cyrus the virus. I remember that from uh, <laughs> the movie with Nicolas Cage, but I don't have that either. Well, how about uh, brain uh, brain fog? You know. Yes, you I know, do have brain fog. <laughs> That's from wearing a London fog jacket over my head. It's uh, supposed to be one of the preventive measures I read on the Internet. You know, you can find all sorts of secret information that uh, no health professional will tell you. Right. If you yeah, in fact, <laughs> look in, on the Internet in fact, and I, ask total I, strangers, they'll tell you fascinating things. I believe I, I hear the sound of a hair dryer being inserted into your mouth, Burl. Uh, no, I don't have a hair dryer in my mouth yet. All right. <laughs> That's not a hair dryer. <laughs> it's a dog and you coffee. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, it's actually what the reason I'm not doing this program live from the gleaming streamlined studios of LR Radio is airing on the side of caution at the uh, insistence of my significant other who has a new grandchild coming to this world at any moment. He says, the last thing I need is for you to get sick. Who knows what person has been breathing on that microphone that you're going to sit at? Well, it would be mad. Yeah, and I said, well, it's probably Matt. Knowing Matt, God knows where that mouth has been. Uh, well, I can name a few places. Uh, well, I, I can name <laughs> several hundred dive bars. Yeah. I know the dive bars open this week. Uh, why would they close? I don't know. <laughs> but it wouldn't be. People there wouldn't know the difference anyway. But that's not why I'm here today. Ah, well, Burl, since we had yes. you as a guest... Uh, I don't know if our uh, listeners know anything about you other than you, you're nuts and you write true crime. That I'm nuts and I'm an Edgar Award winning uh, author and uh, astonishingly brilliant media personality. I've uh, only been arrested once. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, a shame, it's a shame they didn't keep you, but that's besides No, they didn't keep me. <laughs> no. Once they found out that... Well, actually, it was rather fascinating. Uh, they uh, arrested me for, uh, they couldn't really find a reason. Uh, I was uh, DWBOB, driving with a black on board. And, uh, that would be your adopted of, uh, son, right? the state, that's a crime. Was that your so, adopted son? What's that? Uh, was this uh, aforementioned individual your adopted son? I cannot understand a word you're saying, as usual. The, uh, the person writing with you. Was he your adopted son? No, but I did have a similar situation 
in a store, a music store, where my adopted son was sharing with me some interesting information about a particular recording artist. And the owner of the store came over and said, Sir, is that boy bothering you? And I said, He bothers me all the time. He's my son. Oh. Then I had a security guard come and uh, check me out because I was waiting for my son to get off work at the uh, grocery store. And uh, the guy who wanted to know why, uh, why I was uh, hanging around this kid, once we actually got off work, we were waiting for uh, his mom to come pick us up. I said, uh, well, I was hanging around him because he's my son. And he looks at me and he looks at my son. And apparently the concept of uh, multiracial families has never occurred to him. <laughs> So he, he starts getting a little upset about this, and then I said, we're just waiting for his mom to show up. So he figures I must have a uh, an African-American wife. And Britt, my wife at the time, shows up. She's from Norway. <laughs> so so white, she's translucent. I mean, you can hold her up to the light and see her bodily organs, <laughs> which we often do at home, you know, like with... Uh, the TV wasn't working right, but uh, so that really confused him. But we got the hell out of there. No, I was uh, with Michael Green, and uh, we were right at the intersection that changes from Linwood, Washington, to Muckleteo, Washington, ah. and that's where the Linwood Police's jurisdiction would end. So that's where they pulled me over and arrested uh, arrested me and maced him. <laughs> For no particular reason. Well, you know, it, they, you know, they have to have some entertainment. Yeah, yeah, they got, they got to keep busy. So, so, uh, <clears throat> so, what did you did you start out in radio? Did I start off in radio? Yeah. What did you do? You know, you you uh, you're you're hanging around Washington. You know, the state of Washington. You know, minding. Well, your I was business. born and raised in beautiful Walla Walla, Washington. Town's so nice. They named it twice. <laughs> I remember when I was a young lad. Only a few years after being born, I was going to Green Park uh, Elementary School, and uh, Adam West, who later went on to start in Batman, no, no, came no, 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 to the school in a stagecoach because he lived, uh, you know, basically in a suburb of Walla Walla. Walla Walla is too small to have a suburb. It was Prescott, I believe. And he was under contract to Warner Brothers, and he would, uh, you know, show up in Maverick, Cheyenne, Cole 45. All those Warner Brothers Westerns, usually playing Doc Holliday, and dating my sister, which I thought was nice. Well, that's interesting. Uh, they're putting up a statue to him in Walla Walla. Did you know that? Very nice. Yep. Putting up a statue uh, to Adam West in Walla Walla, Washington. I thought that she got to do the Western thing, but they're, of course, going to reference the uh, the Batman show. And they're not going to reference the fact that he was stupid with my sister. Well, how about, you know, he, how how long did he do? Was it Family Guy? What's that? How long did he do the Family Guy? He wasn't he the mayor? Was he the mayor? Yeah, yeah. The uh, oh, Prescott? No, no, the TV, the cartoon, Family Guy. Oh, you're losing me already. Ah, After all the work I put into this program, you're throwing me curveball questions. All right, so <clears throat> you're you're doing radio and having a good old time. Yes. And then you then you became you moved into advertising. Well, yes. Well, you can't really be in radio unless you're working for. Well, of course, if you were doing PBS or something like that, you got to do fundraisers. 
But I was working at KTEL in Walla Walla. I have hair dryers. Uh, Matt was asking if I had a hair dryer in my mouth yet. I had a hair dryer then. I had a radio station with less power than my hair dryer. <laughs> it was 250 watts of power. Broadcasting from a uh, black widow spider infested <laughs> wooden building to the corner of 2nd and Tyatt in Walla Walla, Washington. And it was one of those old-fashioned radio stations where you'd have a, a an hour program that was country-western music followed by an hour of classical music, followed by an hour of rock and roll, followed by dead air. You know, it's, uh, they don't usually have those kind of radio stations anymore, but that's what they had in those days. And I worked there at KTEL. Great excitement. So how did you get involved with The Saint? And it's off. Oh, that's because a buddy of mine, David Benefield, came to me one day and handed me a book and said, read this, it's great fun. That book was The Saint in New York, which um, I thought was a cool book, uh, a little too hard-boiled for my taste, and I said, that was okay. Then he gave me another one called uh, The Saint's Getaway, and that's the one I fell in love with. I thought was, that book was great fun because it was almost a satire on the entire genre of of uh, hero fiction. In fact, the latest edition of that book, Saints Getaway, has an introduction by Robert. How about that? So how the world changes. At one time, I'm being handed the book for the first time, and years later, I'm writing the introduction to the latest edition. So, how about them apples, Wenatchee? Did you, like, uh, did you ever get to meet the author? Yes, I did. Two weeks to the day before he died, uh, Leslie Charteris and his lovely wife, who both now gone to the great publishing house in the sky, uh, bought me a lunch at a little coffee shop in Surrey, England. Uh, great to meet him. His first question was, how can Bill McDonald concentrate on my same movie with Sharon Stone in his bed? Good question. <laughs> Uh, movie producer Bill McDonald was having an affair with Sharon Stone at the time. Not a bad deal. Well, it didn't work out too well for anybody, I don't think. Hmm. Uh, but just before I left to go flight England, I called Bill's house uh, to say goodbye that I was on my way to England, and someone else answered the phone. I said, hi, is Bill there? And he said, no. I said, well, is Naomi, that's his wife, is she there? And he goes, no. Neither one are here. Uh, I'm the neighbor kid. They have me watch the dog. I said, well, okay, we'll just tell them Burrell called him on my way to England. When we landed in England, got off the plane, there was a tabloid newspaper on display right there. We got off the plane and said, picture of Sharon Stone, and said, Sharon Stone was something like in tour affair with Bill McDonald. But oh, that's why he didn't answer the phone. So, <laughs> um, yeah, Joe Westerhouse was having an affair with Bill's wife, and Bill was having an affair with Sharon Stone, and... Um, and my wife at the time, Britt, she said, looked at the article and said, I'll guarantee you one thing. I said, what's that? She said, a year from now, they won't still be together. She was absolutely right. Mm. He was the only one, Bill was the only one who didn't uh, publicize this thing. He didn't make any money off of it. Uh, his wife sold her story to Hot Copy or whatever the show was called uh, for, you know, I don't know. Hard 10, Copy, 000. I believe the name Yeah, Hard Copy for, was it, $10,000 or $100,000. You know, so some people make uh, money off of their indiscretions. So all of this leads you to write uh, the book on uh, the saint. 
What are you saying, young man? <clears throat> I said that this all leads you to writing uh, your book on the saint. Well, yeah, I'd already written the book on the saint by that time. Well, I was writing it, I guess, at that time. Uh, yeah, because Bill and Robert Evans were producing the uh, the same movie with Val Kilmer, and he kept sending me copies of the screenplay, uh, <laughs> which I would then give back my notes saying, what the hell is this nonsense? Uh, didn't pay too much attention to my critiques uh, or those of uh, Ian Dickerson, who also was uh, asked his advice. And he also didn't pay too much attention to Leslie Charteris, the guy who created the saint on his advice, which kind of irritated him, which is also the reason why his name is not on the movie. Uh, by the time it came out, he'd already passed away, and his wife said, take Leslie's name off of that movie. It's a, you know, it's a decent film. It's rather fun yeah. and exciting. Yeah, it's not But it's uh, not very similar to the character as, as written by... Uh, by Leslie Charteris. But I got to, to have kind of the inside track, and uh, I was hired to write the novelization of the film, which was great fun, because I put in all sorts of inside jokes that you'd get if you were an actual saint fan and had read the books. And if you hadn't read them, I hadn't read those books, you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice the jokes anyway. They'd just be part of the regular flow of the story and, right. you know, wouldn't interrupt you. So how does this lead you to true crime? Oh, it led me to true crime <laughs> very easily. I was minding my own business, as Matt Allen would say. I was at the uh, uh, ABA, American Booksellers Association, has a big conference every year, and all the publishers are there. In my book, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne had uh, just come out, so there was a big display of that there. And a woman walks up to me, hands me a card, says, Hi, I'm your new agent. <laughs> name was Charlotte Dial Breeze. Anyway, shortly thereafter, she gives me a phone call and says, Kensington Publishing's uh, Pinnacle True Crime imprint is looking for someone to write a book about a true crime case in uh, Alaska. Of course, I asked the all-important question, is there a check attached? And she said, yes, there is. And I said, well, obviously, I'm the man for the job. So that's how uh, I got into true crime. I went to Alaska and wrote the book Man Overboard. No, I'm Man Overboard. Wrote the book Murder in the Family uh, for Kensington, which was my first serious true crime book, and also, for, so far, my first New York Times bestseller, which caught everybody totally by surprise. Uh, none of us were anticipating that it would become a New York Times bestseller, but it did, just in time for them to run out of books. It'll be becoming a New York Times bestseller. More people wanted to buy it, but there weren't any more books to buy. So I was on the New York Times bestseller list for a week. <laughs> Instead of being on longer because there's more books to buy, they ran out of books. So, But at least I have one New York Times bestseller to my credit so far. Excellent. <clears throat> so let's talk about the uh, story that you were calling. You have to about. speak up or use the microphone, one or two. I'm staring at it. Um, about what? The love, love, love at the cost of life. I am holding that book right in front of me right now. And the, and the, uh, all of our listeners can see it clearly. Yeah, I'll hold it up to the microphone. It says, Love at the Cost of Life, Peran, excuse me, Peran Rahami. Uh, and then it says, An Oral History of the Persecution and Repression of the Baha'i Religious Minority and Post-Revolution Iran, translated from Farsi 
by uh, uh, Haji Rahami, Rahimi rather, uh, and then it says adapted by Burl Bear. The book was originally done in Farsi and then literally translated by Baran uh, Rahimi's uh, husband, the wonderful fellow, in a literal translation, like word for word literal translation. And my assignment was, Burl, could you take this and adapt it into conversational English that could be read by English-speaking people in a book? Well, yes, of course. That was a hell of a lot of work. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the introduction to the to the book. You'll get a kind of an idea what the whole thing's about and why. Of all my true crime books, and it is a true crime book. Uh, it's about a type of crime that there are not a lot of true crime ri- books written about, and that's what's called state crime or national crime. That's where a, a country or a government commits criminal acts. <laughs> you know, have you ever watched the History Channel? <laughs> All that stuff about Hitler? Uh, that's fairly criminal acts. State crime. Anyway, as I say in the preface, those of us who watched the 1979 Iranian Revolution on television only glimpsed video clips and heard sound bites as we ate dinner or prepared for bed. There was much we didn't understand about the Iranian Revolution, why it took place, or its impact on that country's citizens. We gradually learned the new regime was controlled by ultra-conservative right-wing religious fundamentalists who, among other agendas, were intent on persecuting members of the nation's largest religious minority, the Baha'i faith. The reasons and rationalizations for persecuting the Baha'is are as old as the concept of the scapegoat and the twin temptations of exclusivity and finality. When a religion sees itself as the exclusive owner of truth and that nothing more will be revealed, it atrophies and becomes its own enemy. The Baha'i faith rejects any claim of exclusivity or finality and Bruce, uh, excuse me, embraces truth wherever it's found. And unlike Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, which came before Islam, the Baha'i faith emerged in the mid-1800s. So you see that quite often, and I'm diverting now from the published preface. You'll notice that quite often. If it comes before you, before your religion, it's so, well, maybe okay. If it comes after, it's some heresy or not true, because most people figure that whatever their religion is is the only one that exists. It's uh, valid. Well, that's that's the self-perpetuation of the religion. Well, yes, but it doesn't have to... Uh, it can perpetuate without being... Uh, the the end-all and be-all of truth and revelation. After all, you go to school, you go to first grade, and it was time to go to second grade, you don't say, oh, no, I'm not going to know, I'm not another teacher? No, no way. I already had my teacher, Mrs. Schmagegi, over here in the first grade classroom. You don't fool me. She was a wonderful old lady, Mrs. Yeah, we make that transition pretty well from first grade, second grade, third grade. We don't bitch and complain that there's a different teacher in each grade. It's still the same school. Even when we go from grade school to middle school or junior high, as they used to call it, we don't throw a cosmic fit that we're being thrown to the devil by changing schools. It's still the same educational process. We even go on to college sometimes or, or trade school. 
poor become a disc jockey and throw it all to hell. You know, <laughs> we make those transitions easily enough. But for some reason, in the realm of religion, we don't make those transitions. We go, oh, I got the Kentucky Fried franchise on reality. I don't need to learn anything more. You know, well. it all ends here. Even Microsoft, Bill Gates, I mean, you got Windows 3, you know, uh, all the different editions, Windows 10 now. And no one goes, oh, no, this is heresy. I'm not going on an update. No. Well, it's all kind of books by the same author. Anyway, moving right along. Uh, the Baha'i Faith also doesn't have any clergy, but it does have uh, an administrative framework uh, on local, national, international levels. This is important to know for the, uh, the purpose of the book, because if you happen to be a member of the what's called a local spiritual assembly, uh, in Iran, or the National Body, which is the National Spiritual Assembly, uh, you're in for big trouble. Now, Peran Rahimi and her family survived persecution and imprisonment. They escaped to America. Many of their friends were not so fortunate. There was constant news of dear friends being tortured, beaten, interrogated, and killed. Now, after uh, Mrs. Rahimi wrote her own memoir of surviving the nightmare of religious persecution, she turned her attention to preserving the personal stories of other Baha'is who suffered and sacrificed as their loved one gave their lives rather than deny their faith. While still in Iran, Mrs. Rahimi served on a committee that endeavored to record interviews with family members of those martyred for the faith. She continued to do so after leaving Iran, and all Baha'is were encouraged by the Universal House of Justice, the Supreme excuse me, Administrative Body of that faith, to preserve these oral histories whenever possible. Now, here's the challenge. Because Baha'is who left Iran settled in various countries, it wasn't easy for Mrs. Rahimi to find all the people she wanted to interview. But she did locate a significant number of survivors who, with tears in their eyes, openly shared their deeply personal stories of suffering, loss, and tragedy. And they also shared family photographs. Now, historians will undoubtedly write in-depth examinations of that perilous time in Iran's history. Now, this book, Love at the Cost of Life, it only has one purpose, and that is to offer authentic first-person recollections of events told by those who actually experienced them. Each person in this book sat down in front of a tape recorder while Mrs. Rahimi asked the questions. The atmosphere of these interviews was tormenting, she recalls. She mentioned to me quite often. I was asking people to open up the most painful of emotional wounds and speak of the cruelty inflicted on their loved ones. There were many tears shed during these conversations, and again when transcribing them. Many times I had to stop writing because I couldn't hold back my tears. At the beginning of each interview, I asked each person to share memories of happier times before the times of tragedy. Now, some of those interviewed were as eager to share as much detail as possible. Others preferred to be more circumspect. Most avoided citing exact dates because after so many years, he couldn't state dates with any assurance of complete accuracy. But this book isn't about dates and times. It's about life, love, loss, dedication, and sacrifice. It's about service, heroism, pain, suffering, survival, and recovery. When family members didn't have direct knowledge of what befell their loved ones in prison, Mrs. Rahimi sought out former prison inmates 
to shed illumination on those dark days. Now, every word in this book is authentic. Any errors, in fact, of course, are unintentional. And all portrayals of events are exactly as the people experienced them. Now, the interesting thing is the spelling of names appears inconsistent. Now, that's because there is not a universal standard for rendering them into English. And many families with the same last name spell it differently. We've endeavored to use the same spellings as used by the families. Now, this English language edition required careful translation of the original interviews into literal English by Peron's beloved husband, Hediad Rahimi. Now, it was my personal honor and privilege to work closely with Peron Rahimi since January 2009 in adapting these literal translations into conversational English. Now, she labored over this project for more than a decade, despite obstacles of time, distance, language, and her personal health issues. She has presented us a compelling oral history of significant historical value. Probably the only book that I've worked on that future generations will be reading a hundred years from now because it's the only oral history of these people that exists. There's no doubt that of all the books I've written or may write in the future, this one will endure countless generations as it is, as I mentioned, an authentic oral history of the persecution, imprisonment, torture, and the execution of innocent souls was only offense, was love of their faith and dedication to the unifying teachings of it. Interestingly enough, teachings that call us to recognize our intrinsic oneness and forever banish from our hearts all traces of racial, religious, political, and gender prejudice, which is why they suffered, because they were victims of those exact things. So how about that? That's the introduction to the book. And I'll tell you, it was very difficult, but every story in this book is absolutely heartbreaking. My uh, dearly beloved uh, Barbara Cream was did the uh, line editing on the book, and she's checking for punctuation, you know, commas, and this sort of, you know. But she has to stop every once in a while because you start crying because of the stories. It's so tragic. So, uh, difficult book to write, very difficult book to... I mean, it's easy to read in terms of stylistically, but the stories are so sad that you can't exactly, you know, but you don't want to make an evening of it because you'll get so overwhelmed with how tragic the stories are. It's a pretty thick book as so many people were. Uh, and the tra another tragic thing is it's, it's heated up again over there. It's like it wasn't bad enough first, second, third time around of pursuing the Baha'is, but... The revolutionary government of Iran has decided, well, it's about time to do it again. So that's one reason I decided to discuss this book today, is because uh, they're doing it again, ramping up the persecution of Baha'is over there. And um, they're I not considered a... citizens, they're not issued uh, citizenship cards, you know, it's like the Nazi regime, show me your papers, you know, and Baha'is aren't allowed to have papers, so they get arrested. Um, I, have a, I have a friend. Uh, that uh, is Russian, and Hello? Uh, there was a, a period of time where uh, Russian uh, Jews they were. I can't hear you, Bart. Uh, Russian Jews were persecuted. Oh yes, indeed. Right, and then uh, they made it. You know, the government said, "Okay, get the hell out of the country." Yeah, so that's how my his, parents wound up here. Yeah, so he and his family moved to uh, West Germany. 
I still haven't gotten a clear answer of why they why a Jew would go to Germany, but that's another story. I could understand why what? Why uh, a Jewish person would would emigrate into West Germany? I just found that <laughs> odd. But here, uh, in any event, the um, I find it fascinating that uh, tac uh, a tacit authorization uh, from uh, a supposed leader allows human being to throw all uh, decency out the window. Well, it's not only allow, it's encourage. I mean, Hitler certainly encouraged it. Mussolini encouraged it. Uh, it happens, uh, I mean, any time you have despots, uh, you're going to have, uh, you're going to find someone to blame for the problems that some outsider, some minority, whether it's, oh, it's all the problems of, well, I saw on Facebook a little card you could get that you can check off who's to blame for all your unhappiness. Immigrants, Mexicans, Jews, blacks, you know, <laughs> you know who, who are we going to blame today? Uh, and uh, it's always, you know, some minority that's finding his own business. So, yeah, it's all their fault. And uh, they come after him. Uh, and, uh, when the persecution starts, I've ever learned this in sociology class, is it when the minority gets to be like really large, like 50% of the population, or 40% or 30%, it's like 12% or less. Uh, and if they're visible, and if there's any distinguishing uh, marks or characteristics, makes it easier to, to, uh, to you know, pick them out. In fact, there was a, a fellow uh, who was a notorious anti-Catholic, you know, in America in the uh, 1840s, there's a lot of prejudice against Catholics. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, this swimming pool doesn't take uh, blacks, Jews, or Catholics, or dogs. Um, Catholics were under a great deal of persecution in the United States because you had a wave of Irish immigrants. And any time you got a bunch of immigrants to look different, sound different, why, that's just the perfect person to blame for everything. All of those Catholics coming here, they're not really starving from the, uh, uh, you know, the famine over there. Uh, they're actually secret agents of the Pope bent on taking all our American jobs and destroying our wonderful American heritage. And uh, the Irish Catholics suffered uh, uh, terribly under that, what they call the nativist movement. Um, in fact, a lot of the uh, uh, Protestant denominations that uh, you may be familiar with started at that time and were part of that anti-Catholic uh, tirade. The guy who was one of the number one anti-Catholic um, hate mongers wrote a biography, <laughs> which was nice of him, uh, not for publication, but it was put uh, in, like, in the library when he passed away, donated to the library. And a researcher went and found it. And what was fascinating is that you got to remember, hate is an industry. It's a business. This is how the guy made his living, was selling uh, anti-Catholic literature. Why did he sell anti-Catholic literature? How did he pick on the Catholics? It was a business decision. When starting, he wanted to be an anti-Semite. He wanted to hate Jews. But he found out that the uh, hating Jews business was controlled primarily by uh, three uh, companies or individuals in New York, and uh, it was hard to break into that market. So if you wanted to sell hate for a living, uh, selling hatred of Jews, well, that business was already pretty well sewn up. Uh, these three families had a monopoly on it. 
So we had to look around, like any other businessman, and say, okay, who could I sell hate against? Who's uh, on the West Coast here? Who's just different enough? They're a minority, but we can spot them. Maybe there's something different about them. They worship maybe differently. Uh, something that we can, you know, maybe use a different Bible or something. Uh, and so we found that Catholics fit that description. And so he was able to make a living selling hate against Catholics when originally he wanted to sell hate against Jews. Uh, maybe if he was alive today, he'd sell uh, hate against Muslims or hate against Mexicans or maybe he'd go after the Jews again. Maybe the market's changed. Uh, you know, maybe there's room for him now. But it's, it's never simply a matter of, of uh, mental illness. <laughs> it's also a matter of corruption in terms of wanting to make a living and trying to figure, well, hate's a good way to make a living. I can sell hate literature, which is what this guy did. And he did it on, uh, on Catholics. Other people do it on, on hating Jews or hating immigrants or hating Muslims or hating somebody. But um, what was that guy I just saw on uh, TV uh, in Germany? His motto is, make Germany hate again. Uh, there's Very a, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, mo uh, a Nazism movement. Yeah, I was. You watch the TV show uh, Hunters with Al Pacino. Uh, no, it's a little bit over the top, but they they hunt down Nazis and kill them, <laughs> which is kind of a fantasy. Mm. You know, I have uh, I have living uh, relatives that were in the camps. They were in the camps. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they were. They survived the camps. They were forced to survive. Not Interesting, you talk to a lot of Holocaust survivors, which I've done. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. They don't have much hate. Even though they went through such a horrible experience, most of the people who were, with the exception of, say, like Mengele and uh, some of these other, you know, people who were just, like, really into it, uh, a lot of the uh, people who were in the uh, army, shall we say, were just kids who got forced into it by their government, what are they going to do? Kind of like the Nazi occupation of Norway. I used to ask my mother-in-law and father-in-law, what, what was it like living under the Nazis when they took over Norway? And I said, but most of all, I'm fascinated to find out what happened when they got the telegram that said, guess what? You lost the war. <laughs> Here they've been lording it, you know, Nazis have been lording it over the population. They get a telegram, you lost the war. Please surrender to the uh, Norwegians. I said, "What did they do?" All of a sudden, they, you know, they're no longer, <laughs> you no longer the head cheese there. They're no longer bossing people around. What did they do? And my mother-in-law said, "Well, you got to remember, most of the people there in the German army, like 18, 19-year-old kids, got drafted to the German army and sent to Norway. The SS was running things, and they ran out. They ran home, but." You know, tried to steal as much stuff as they could. But the average uh, German soldier was like this 18, 19-year-old kid. They didn't go back. They went, hell no. They stayed, married the uh, Norwegian girls, and uh, stuck their brains out. Um, you know, it was, they, uh, they weren't the bad guys. They were as much victims as anybody else. And a lot of the uh, people who worked in the, in the concentration camps helped the Nazi hunters uh, track down the uh, the SS guys who were uh, putting together the final solution, etc. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, Burl, one of the things you got to recognize 
I can't hear you if you don't use the microphone. One of the things that you need to recognize is the individuals we're talking about were, were essentially Orthodox Jews. Were what? Orthodox Jews. Well, I don't know that how many Reformed Jews they had. Right. So <clears throat> part of the Jewish tendent is forgiveness. Yeah. And so um, I am not surprised that, uh, that there is... Um, there's a lot of uh, of forgiveness and and a lot less hatred, you know, amongst these in individuals that survived. Yeah, there, there were those that they wouldn't forgive and couldn't forgive. Uh, they were just so horrible. And then there were those that were on the other side. Those were the ones with the uh, the soldiers who were pressed into that service. That they objected to what they were doing. They would have been shot too. Um, I'm gonna tell you uh, a really long story as quickly as possible. Right, my, go right uh, my, make sure you talk directly to the microphone. My, uh, hi, my best friend from high school, his father was a child when his family from Poland was taken to the camps. And prior to his parents being taken to the gas chambers, the showers as they were called, mm. um, his father grabbed him and said, I don't care what you do, you survive. You're forgiven. Mm. Another inmate took the boy screaming <clears throat> to another line where he got his tattoo, no J. And he spent the next six years, six to 12, going from camp to camp with an SS officer as his houseboy, cleaning mm. his uh, room, taking care of his shoes, and clothes, whatever he needed the boy to do. Until the, uh, the Allies liberated whichever camp he was in at this point, because he had spent time in most of them. <clears throat> So we fast forward to junior high school, and I'm at, I'm at my friend's house, and his older brother comes home with his first car. Okay, say that all again. He comes home with his first vehicle. He, the, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, like, uh, he's 17, he gets a car, he's really excited, he comes home, and he's all thrilled to show it off. He bought a Volkswagen. His father, I, 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 I can still see in my in mind's eye the look on his face. He walked, calmly, he, walked, he walked calmly to the car on the curb, put his fist through the roof, and attempted to extract his son through the hole he just made. Amazing. And uh, his wife is out there trying to keep her from killing her boy. Uh, my friend and I are sitting on the porch just, you know, in awe of what the hell's going on. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know if he forgave. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the, what was um, who has that song, Jews and Mercedes? <laughs> well, the first, um, the, um, the first thing he did, he was just wandering uh, around. There was no place to go. Couldn't go home because there wasn't one anymore. He just, he ended up in a group, just being cattle walked onto a boat. He was just there. Ended up on a boat to America. He mm. gets to New York, doesn't speak English. He speaks Polish, that's it. <clears throat> he manages to find someone and ask the best, for the best tattoo shop in New York. And he gets escorted there and gets the J put on his arm. Mm. Amazing. My uncle Gordon uh, was in the troops, the American troops that liberated the concentration camps. Years, 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 decades later, he happens to be in New York, 
just going walking, walking through the streets, and a guy runs up to him with tears in his eyes and starts hugging my uncle. I don't know what the hell is going on. This guy is sobbing all over him. He says, what was this? I will never forget you. Because you are the one who liberated me. You cut the barbed wire in front of me and let me out of the concentration camp. So what? So uh, what are some of the stories? In, in well, the- I'll, I'll share with you uh, a lengthy one here because it just goes into a lot of what the hell was going on. This is from an interview with Miss uh, Miss Bashir Bashiri. Daughter of Akbar Bashiri conducted uh, this interview was done in April 2002, and it starts off as a question and answer. Question: You went through the entire trauma in Iran from the outbreaks of hostility against the Baha'is up to your father's tragic execution. Give us some background, please, about your parents. And she goes on and talks about how their parents were married in 1945 in Isfahan and. They lived in Isfahan for about 20 years. She says, my father was a scholarly man who graduated from the University of Tehran with a law degree and became a respected educator. He served as head of the legal office of the Department of Education in Isfahan. He also taught at schools, and she was in various cities where he taught. She says, when was he first singled out for hostility because of his faith? So it was 1967. Because he was a Baha'i, he was targeted by religious fanatics and banished for two years to the city of Yazd by Savak, the former regime's secret police. My mother and the children were not allowed to go with him, and he was not allowed to stay in Isfahan. He'd return in hiding on the weekends so that the family could be with him. After two years in Yaz and 30 years of being a respected educator, he was retired from government service. At that time, he moved to Tehran, where he worked 12 years for the College of Architectural Affairs of the University. So we asked, was the reason for his banishment to Yaz and not being allowed a resident permit for Isfahan tied to the fact that he was a Baha'i? So without a doubt. He served as a member of the local spiritual assembly for many years, and everyone in the city knew him well. The religious fanatics also knew him well, and they kept track of his every activity, every minute of his daily routine. They knew his every step from morning where he went, what Baha'i meetings he attended, what hour he'd visit the local Baha'i center. They kept track of all of this with obsessive precision. They compiled a thick file and a long indictment to the effect that he'd been a staunch teacher of Baha'i. Actually, the only thing he used in his teaching was an example of his own character in showing compassion and respect in his treatment of others. Well, then the fellow winds up becoming a member of the National Spiritual Assembly uh, of Iran, the national administrative body, which now no longer exists. Meanwhile, so we say, when the Islamic Revolution took place, the first local spiritual assembly members in Tehran were arrested and executed. When the second Tehran assembly was arrested, three of the nine members, including my father, were absent from the meeting. Those who were in attendance were arrested and executed. Meanwhile, members of the second national spiritual assembly were arrested and executed. My father was elected to the third national spiritual assembly of Iran. Well, can you imagine that? The first one, everyone's arrested and executed. The second one, everyone's arrested and executed. You know, and now the third one, you just get elected to it. You've got to have a pretty good idea of, 
of what your fate's going to be, right? Yes. My father was pursued for two years. He'd never stay at our home for long, but rather was hidden away at our grandmother's home. We had quite a number of extended family members who weren't Baha'is, and they also would give him residence in secret for his protection. Finally, one day, he said he was tired of living that kind of life. He'd like to come back and stay home no matter what happened. Well, there were several men in Tehran who had the same name as my father, and I think one reason he wasn't arrested sooner is because they, always, they weren't always sure what Akwan Bashiri was he. They didn't want to arrest the wrong man. The new government issued a ruling that all property owners were duty-bound to bring any property ownership deeds, lease, and rental agreements, and that sort of thing to the Revolutionary Committee, plus a copy of the birth certificate and two identification photographs. Failure to do so was considered an anti-revolutionary crime punishable by death. If you didn't do it, you faced a firing squad. My father, being a law-abiding citizen, took the appropriate documents to a committee. Three or four days later, they called our house, demanded complete background information to my father. We, of course, gave them everything they wanted. About a week later, a group of the regime's guards raided our neighbors under the pretext they had traced a smuggler to that location. They insisted that the neighbor allow them to set up surveillance on the second floor to monitor any activity in the neighborhood. At first, the owners of the home refused, called a friend of theirs of the Islamic Committee to help them, but their friend told them to cooperate. We're pretty sure there was simply a ruse. It was devised to cover up their true intention, which was to monitor any traffic by the Baha'is in and out of our house, especially any meetings of the National Assembly. It didn't take them long to realize they couldn't get a clear view of our house with that location, so they abandoned that plan. The neighbors, who were very nice and friendly towards us, confirmed our suspicions when they told my mother, send Mr. Bashiri to some other place. They intend to have him taken away. The search for a smuggler was a cover-up. That night when my father came home, my mother told him, asked him to stay away for a few days, and he said, they know our address. They'll come and take me away anytime they want. The more we insisted, the more resistant he became. He simply decided to stay and seemed rather indifferent to the threat of arrest. Well, we never knew the exact details because it happened like this, the arrest of the father. It was a Wednesday, June 1983. My father was going to the post office to send a couple of packages off to my brother and sister in the United States. First, he went to a shop to weigh the packages. On his way back, he said to my brother, quote, I'm going to be arrested today. Please pray for me. My mother and he then delivered the packages to the post office. On the way back to the house, he gave the house keys and his address books to my mother, told her to go on ahead without him. I want to go to the park and do some reading there. My mother returned home. My father never came back. We have no idea exactly when or where he was arrested. One thing was for certain that he'd been followed from the moment he left the house that morning. Usually my father came home late at night because he was busy handling the affairs of the National Assembly. However, when it was about 11.30 p.m. and we still hadn't heard from him, we became concerned. First, we thought perhaps he went to the home of one of our relatives, called our uncle, both he hadn't seen him. We called my grandmother. She hadn't seen or heard from him either. The next morning, we called around to several of our friends, and they, too, had nothing to report. I called Mr. Kajani, another member of the Assembly, and he said, no, hung up, because the government was tapping his telephone. He was arrested right after the phone call. Well, I can give you a partial chronology. My father was arrested on Wednesday. Mr. Kajani was arrested on Thursday. 
We didn't know that my father had been arrested. We'd be killed him for some time. We called around. Well, they called around the hospital, you know, trying to find out where he was. They even called the authorities. The authorities said they had no information, but we didn't believe them. We figured they knew exactly where he was in a situation, but they refused to tell us. Uh, even approached MDAD, which is a non-Islamic charity, a non-governmental organization. In fact, MDAD took over the uh, Baha'i Center after it was confiscated from the Baha'is by the new regime. They interviewed us at length and promised to inform us about the result of their investigation within 24 hours. They lied. We never heard back from them. Well, obviously the interviewer said this must have been rather stressful. Yeah, the very next day coincided with the 19th of Ramadan, which is a special holiday holiday for Shiite Muslims. All businesses were closed that day. And all day long our phone was ringing with friends and relatives calling to find out if we had any news of my father. Then at 6 o'clock Monday morning, the doorbell rang. I went to the door, opened it, and there stood the notorious Tolui, the feared torture mongerer and murderer from the Islamic Revolutionary Committee, accompanied by 12 fully armed guards. What they had done was first ring the upper floor and told our neighbors that they were relatives of ours from Isfahan. They didn't. They made sure they were in the right place, and once they knew you know, they had the right house, they pushed the bell to our apartment before the neighbors could call us. Tolui, the executioner of Evan Prison, was the first to push his way past me into the home. As was my right, I asked to see any authorized search warrant and his credentials, but he simply rudely ignored me as he closed all the curtains so no one could see inside. Wherever you hid Bashiri, bring him to me, or we'll take you in as well. We have no idea where he is, I replied honestly. We're all terribly worried about him. You have sent him to Israel for sure, he barked back at me, and the guards began searching the house. Now, as I mentioned, my father was a scholarly man and had hundreds of books. Any time we would suggest that he move or dispose of some of them, he'd object, saying, there's plenty of books in every Baha'i house, which, by the way, is true. They took all the books and forced my little brother to carry them from the basement to the trucks. They searched the house for six solid hours, taking marriage certificates, every document that had anything to do with the local assembly ready Baha'i institution. We tried to keep an eye on them while they were searching, although I don't know what we could have done. They planted drugs or a gun or false evidence against us. It wasn't unusual for them to do that, and they were well known for fabricating cases against people. The entire time our house was being torn apart by these rude and uncouth guards, our phone was ringing with friends and relatives calling to, you know, see if there's any new news. Guards wanted to overhear our conversations, hoping to catch some information they could use against us or find someone else to arrest. When on the phone, we didn't say anything beyond the most basic but out conversation. One guard asked me if we had another phone so we could actually listen in. Finally, he became angry and ripped the telephone off the wall altogether. <laughs> Before they left, when the guards approached my mother and asked her, Are you fasting? The reason for this question is because it was Ramadan, the month of fasting for Muslims. My mother replied she wasn't fasting. He asked, Are you a Muslim or a Baha'i? I am a Baha'i, mother replied. And he exploded with fury, screaming, Get up! You must come with us and tell us where you've hidden your husband. I intervened and told them the guard that none of us knew where my father was, and they left, took with them everything they could get their hands on. Well, what happened after they left? Well, first we stood silent and dumbstruck by this horrible devastation of our home. Our neighbors came over and saw the mess they made, and they too broke down in tears. These neighbors were true Muslims, filled with compassion and kindness, and they did their best to intervene on, on uh, our behalf. 
One of them even called Mr. Lajvardi, the chief of the prison, asking for help finding my father. The neighbor was told that the request had been for anyone else, he would do it. But because my father was a Baha'i, there was nothing he could do to help. Words could not express how devastated we were. It was as if our very lives were draining from us. We simply collapsed in the corner, unable to move. The next day we had a telephone call. If you want your father, go search for his corpse in the jungle around Karaj. I didn't drive at that time, so I asked my neighbor to help me find it. He looked at me and said, don't you understand? They're lying to you. They only say this to hurt you. It's impossible to search the jungle. They called and said this only to cause you more pain. Indeed, he was correct. Two days later, they called and said, our, uh, our patient at uh, the hospital was going to be released. They wanted us to go get him. Our father wasn't there. And they called. Thinking, you know, they kept calling with more BS to you know, harass these people. It wasn't easy to get any accurate information at all, at all whatsoever. Well, we finally found out that their father had moved to a Gordash prison, and they finally got confirmation information that, that that's exactly where it was. It was winter, it was snow was thick, and you take a bus to the prison. Prison itself was built like a fortress with high cement walls. When we arrived, we went to the visitor's area, and they told us to go back to Evan Prison on that same arduous road. Once we got to Evan Prison, they told us to go back to Gordash Prison. You see how cruel they were. They just kept, you know, jerking these people around. How long was it before you actually knew for a fact that your father was being held? Eight months after he disappeared, they finally found out. When did you finally have personal contact? Eight months until it was confirmed that my father and these two other arrested after my father were all in Gordash Prison. Ten months before we had actual personal contact. It was... Just about the anniversary, March 21st, 1984, that my father was allowed to call us on the telephone. I wasn't home that day, but my brother was lucky enough to speak with our father, as was my mother, who arrived at the end of the conversation. The conversation was very simple and superficial. Basically, it was, how are you? I'm fine. Not any freedom to have any type of in-depth conversation. Most of the calls served to let us know he was alive. It was two more months before they heard anything again. Um, they were going to get to visit the prison. They were finally able to, I'm skipping ahead, they were finally able to visit him and actually see him in person at Evan Prison when he'd been moved sometime later. The women, of course, were put on separate buses and the men. Meetings took place in a small cage-like cell with thick glass wall between the prisoner and the visitor. Talk over the telephone. Uh, they got to see uh, their father once every three weeks. It was a very emotionally draining experience. And of course, as you know, the final outcome, uh, their father was uh, executed. I don't think there was any trial or anything. They just took him out and shot him. It says it was Thursday, 10th day of the month of Aban on the Islamic calendar. My mother called me to tell me the horrid news. She told me she'd received a telephone call from the prison informing her of his death. First, I didn't believe it because they were always toying with our emotions. But the uh, story goes that those sentenced to death were summoned to the office, taken through various formalities, and then taken to the place of execution. From what we heard while my father was being escorted to the gallows, he recited aloud the verse, those whose hearts are filled with love 
attain life eternal for love itself is the very essence of life. With love and bravery, my beloved father walked to his fate, knowing he was innocent of wrongdoing. The verse he recited proclaims he would not go to his death with hate in his heart, not even hate for those who are about to end his life. As you mentioned, Mark, there's that very strong teaching of forgiveness and not having hate, even for those who end your life. One of the other Baha'is in Karaj was hanged at the same time as my father. The man who shared the same cell with my father was Mr. I don't pronouncing his name. Ishanullah Naragi. He was a later freed from prison. Told me what he witnessed the day of my father's execution. One of the things that was done in prison to further break the morale of the Baha'is was forced them to watch their friends being executed. A, four, a few moments before my father's execution, he saw Mr. Ayadi and called out to him saying, Hassan, come close and let me hug you farewell. At first the guards denied him, but my father was not being held back. He made his way to Mr. Ayadi and his promise gave him a farewell embrace. So, uh... Wow. Yeah, the father was also tortured extensively before being executed. Well, of course. Yeah, you got to do that. It's like the overture. Hey, Burrow, <clears throat> thank you for uh, chatting with us. We'll, well get you I next think it's week. My, my rare opportunity and pleasure. <laughs> hey, Mark, what's next? It's Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence on Outlaw Radio.